Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my book project, The Word Diet, reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the arc of the Scriptures. The Word Diet is good for a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with partners. That way you get better accountability and richer discussion. And it's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but I'm aiming the project at novices and strugglers, those who have not yet gotten into the great Word of God. This is you. Get a few friends to join you. If this isn't you, I'll bet you got a few friends with you in that position. So start a group, a Word Diet group. Help them get into the great Word of God. More information is available about the book project at thoroughlyequipped.org. For the radio show, we're in the book of Ephesians, my favorite book on Christian theology and practice. My goal with the show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible. So please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. Today we start into the book of Ephesians. The letter was written in 60 to 62 AD during Paul's first prison stay in Rome. You could say quite a bit about this, that he's writing letters while he's in prison. He doesn't see the prison as some great barrier to his continuing ministry. He takes his circumstances as given and focuses on what he can do within those contexts. And there's a great lesson for us in that as well. The book of Ephesians comes from Paul's difficulties in the midst of that. And so God calls us many times to be productive in the midst of our troubles as well. Unlike many of Paul's letters, this does not address a particular heresy. For example, legalism in Galatians, the Libertines and the Corinthian church, the end-time sluggards of the Thessalonican church, or the pastoral epistles of Timothy and Titus, for example. But Ephesians, for that reason, is also general and great on theology and practice, in many ways very similar to the book of Colossians. There are three chapters each on resources, what God provides for us, what might be considered above us, and three chapters on our responsibilities, what God has put before us. There's a focus on both head and heart and hands and feet. And so I'll come back to this, but the first half on the resources, the second half on the responsibilities that we have in Christ, and it's important that they come in that order. Our identity determines our responsibility. And both are crucial to Christian discipleship. We frequently talk about the latter without enough of the former. We want to focus on our responsibilities and what we should do, but really the key is what comes before that, the resources we have in Christ, our theology, and so on. If we don't have that straight, then the responsibilities will not be well done, understood, lived out, and so on. A.W. Tozer says that our idea of God correspond as nearly as possible to the true being of God, is of immense importance. A right conception of God is basic not only to systematic theology, but to practical Christian living as well. John Stott describes Ephesians as a concise yet comprehensive summary of the good news and its implications. Perhaps for this reason, it was John Calvin's favorite epistle. So let's talk about Ephesus in particular. It's an important city in what is now Turkey. It was at the intersection of trade routes, and it was a great commercial center. It's also interesting to consider Paul's strategy to put churches in strategic centers where evangelism could easily emanate. I remember being at Grace Bible Church in College Station, Texas during my grad school years, and the pastor there talked about how influential A&M was and how great an opportunity that the church there had 
to attract all sorts of people from all around the world and then to send them out as disciples, in particular international missions, was being done effectively from a small town in Texas. All these grad students would come to A&M and then head back to their own country, understanding their relationship with Jesus, being effective disciples and disciple makers, being well aware of their own culture and language and being effective free missionaries to those countries. The Old Testament provides biblical warrant for this as well. Think about what Israel was supposed to be, located on trade routes. It was supposed to be a light unto the Gentiles, we're told in Isaiah. And they only seem to achieve that in great part during the reign of Solomon. Think of the Queen of Sheba visiting him. But Israel was supposed to be in a position, geographically and otherwise, to be a great influence in the world. And it falls to the church living under the new covenant, Jesus and the Spirit, to pick up what the Old Testament Israel was not able to do very well. There's an interesting religious side note about Ephesus as well. It was the location of the temple of Artemis or Diana, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Back to the general nature of the letter, it's often considered a circular letter, that it started in Ephesus but would have been widely circulated from there. Still, it's important to understand the context of the city of Ephesus. Now, what about Ephesus elsewhere in the Bible? We first read about it in Acts 18, verses 19 through 21, a fledgling church established on Paul's second missionary journey between 51 and 52 AD. That passage has a number of interesting details. Paul, as he often did, reasoned with the Jews in the synagogue. And verses 20 and 21, he declined to stay, but he promised to return, God willing. Verse 19 also has that he left behind Priscilla and Aquila, the wife and husband team to lead. Then we see Ephesus again in Acts 19. This is Paul's three-year stint in Ephesus, 53 to 55 AD, early in the third missionary journey to strengthen the church there. He also wrote 1 Corinthians during this time. There's a crisis in chapter 19, verses 23 through 27. That leads to chapter 20, verse 1, and the need to move along. But on his return trip, we read again about his time in Ephesus. Chapter 20, verse 16, through the introduction to chapter 21, has his farewell address to the elders at Miletus, avoiding a longer visit or perhaps more conflict with the townspeople along the lines of that crisis earlier in chapter 19. That's a beautiful passage. Let me go ahead and read it here. Acts 20, verses 16 through 24 to start. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia, for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I've lived the whole time I was with you from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents." You know that I've not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but I've taught you publicly and from house to house. I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. I like two phrases in verse 20, that he had not hesitated, and then the reference to both public and house-to-house teaching. Verse 22, he talks about the Spirit leading him despite no idea what's next for him. 
Verse 23, he's going to go in some direction, and he knows trials are to follow. And then again, verse 24, a reference to one of his favorite metaphors, finishing the race. Down to verses 28 through 32, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. In verse 32, he says to build you up an inheritance. This is the goal of Ephesians in a nutshell. And then 28 through 31, the famous warning references to flocks, shepherds, and wolves to be on guard with a warning. Notice in verse 28 that the entire trinity gets mentioned there. And then a really interesting phrase late in verse 31 that he was there for three years with tears. And then finally down to verse 36 and into chapter 21, when Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. After we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. I love that passage because you can read Paul and just imagine that there's passion and intellect and all that, but there's just a different level of that going on here. The intimacy of the relationships, his passion for people, not just the truth, but the people that he loved and wanted to serve and disciple is simply amazing. Next, we see Ephesians referred to in 1 Timothy 1.3, which is written between 63 to 65 AD, to encourage Timothy to remain there in service and to deal with heresy. This is written during Paul's second prison stay in Rome, and it had become clear to him that he would not be leaving. And then finally, we see the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2, John's letter to the church there. And as an aside, it's worth noting that John wrote the epistles of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John from Ephesus. I love the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. Often we think Revelation is impenetrable, but in fact, Revelation 2 and 3 is quite easy to read, especially with the symbolism as described in Revelation 1. And that first church at Ephesus gets, I think, the most important letter for the Western church today at least conservatives and evangelicals. There's so many things to commend, seven things. But then the heartbreaking and crushing critique in verse 4 that they had forsaken the love that they had at first to consider how far they had fallen and calls them to repentance. There's so much to say about that letter, but I've already covered that in episode 4, so I encourage you to listen to the podcast to pick that up. Well, that's enough by way of introduction. Let's actually do the introduction to the letter itself. Chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a short greeting with the traditional elements of a greeting of that time, especially from Paul. For example, Paul identifies himself as an apostle, He has been both chosen and sent, and he cites God's will in this, and it's addressed to the saints, nine times referenced in the book of Ephesians, and this is a term that refers to all believers, also defines them as the faithful in Jesus Christ. Very nice title here, and more focused on the heart rather than deeds. 
Who we are in Jesus is more important than the particular ways we might try to measure that. And physically, he's in Ephesus, but spiritually, he's in Christ. That phrase will be used 11 times in this opening up through verse 14. And Paul is in prison physically, but not spiritually. In Christ is the key to the book of Ephesians, especially this first half. Notice it doesn't say the faithful who are in church or the faithful who are in the word. There's other things we often will try to substitute for being simply in Christ. And then the standard Paul Christianized Greek Hebrew greeting of grace and peace. But those are also key terms in this book. We need to live in grace and peace. All right, it's time to take a break. Please check out Proclaim from Pure Radio, Kentuckiana's Christian Community Bulletin, available online at pureradio.org and with free paper editions in store at 200 locations. Please spread the word about Pure Radio, the station, and the show. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. In the first segment, we got through an introduction to the book of Ephesians and the first two verses, and that takes us to the powerful verse 3, where Paul writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. It turns out that verses 3 through 14 are one sentence in the Greek. It's a doxology, an expression of worship and praise by Paul about what God has done. But for now, we're going to introduce it by focusing on the opening here in verse 3 on every spiritual blessing. And this is an extraordinarily powerful verse. Warren Wearsby uses it as his key verse, key theme in the book of Ephesians in his commentary called Be Rich. And I've heard three different sermons, uh, two from Bob Russell, one from my pastor in Texas, Dwight Edwards, just on this verse alone. So there's so much for this verse to offer, I think, as you'll see. The first is the nature of the blessing. And we have two phrases here. First, that it's spiritual blessings we're talking about. And then later in the verse, in the heavenly realm. This emphasizes God's sovereignty, his eternality. And these are the same sorts of words that are used in Colossians in that great book on discipleship, both in chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, and then again at the halfway point, chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. This latter phrase is used five times in Ephesians. And it's a phrase that's only used in Ephesians. Ephesians. It points to the unseen spiritual realities that are so crucial to the Christian life. And the phrasing also implies mystery and majesty, encouraging the reader to consider them in greater depth and to continue their reading of what Paul is about to unfold. So we have two categories of blessings. We have spiritual blessings, and those are being contrasted implicitly with physical or material blessings. As for spiritual blessings, we might consider those eternal life and abundant life. Eternal life has already begun for the believer. Abundant life is usually a phrase we talk about on earth for the varying degrees of abundance that one can have in obedience and in following Christ in life. Now, why is Paul emphasizing spiritual blessings? There's two ways to go here. The first is negative, that there are problems with physical and material blessings. So let's talk about that. They're often temporary. They often encourage pride and self-dependence or a dependence on the blessing itself, a confusion of the gift with the giver. Think about people whose glory days are in high school, and they never quite seem to be able to recover from that. Or sometimes it leads to problems with self-esteem. I'm often struck how people that are blessed in terms of looks or athletic ability, intellect, charisma, come to depend on those things. And it's not ultimately clear whether those things are actually a blessing on net or not. 
Another issue related to this is a so-called health and wealth gospel, that it misses what God really wants to offer us by focusing on things that God doesn't want us to focus on. If physical material blessings have some disadvantages, it turns out that there are a number of advantages to spiritual blessings. For one thing, they're available to all, unlike physical blessings. And I think the answer we usually focus on is that they provide a greater depth of satisfaction with life, the peace, joy, and love that surpass understanding, versus mere happiness that comes with happenstance or circumstance, the particular temporary blessings that we might enjoy from time to time. Biblically, it's interesting to compare the Old Testament and the New Testament here. In the Old Testament, the emphasis was mostly physical needs and blessings that stem from obedience. This is at the heart of the Old Covenant. If you obey, I will bless you. If you disobey, I will curse you. And this was a stick-carrot approach that, paraphrasing C.S. Lewis, God was trying to convince Israel that there was one of him and that he cared about right conduct. But that approach is superseded by the New Testament, which is mostly spiritual. Ironically, these blessings also are connected to obedience. You can't have the spiritual blessings promised in the New Testament if you're not following a good and great God. It doesn't work that way. And maybe Proverbs gives us a good middle ground that there are certain ways to live life that generally lead to prosperity, both in a material and a spiritual sense. We live life in a way that God has intended it to be set up. There are certainly exceptions to this. For example, believers are promised persecution, suffering of many kinds, trials of many kinds. So at best, there's this uneasy Venn diagram-ish connection between spiritual material blessings and obedience. And Paul's focus here is on the sure thing, the spiritual blessings that are available to us in the heavenly realm. Now, all that said, we seem to prefer Old Testament to New Testament blessings, even though we're told New Testament promises are greater and point to greater realities. Who wants the fruit of the Spirit when they could have the fruit of material blessings? But the New Testament indicates, as Paul does here, that spiritual blessings are the greater thing. Why do we have trouble here? Well, spiritual blessings usually involve our participation, and we like blessings to be showered on us. Spiritual blessings are usually delayed, and we like our immediate gratification. We want the present, not the future. Spiritual blessings are often subtle and require reflection, and they're in contrast to obvious, tangible, and measurable physical blessings. We're always better with concrete items than concepts that are abstract. But here's when it's easiest to see that physical blessings are less than spiritual blessings, and again, it's in times of suffering, persecution, and trial. For one thing, the physical blessings are often taken away from us in those moments, and again, the spiritual blessings take us to better places that are unattainable through physical and material blessings. And so be thankful for the trials of suffering, the persecution, whatever you endure in that regard, and help them point you to the greater spiritual blessings that God has for you in Christ Jesus. Now let's look at the extent of those blessings. And the key word here is every. In Ephesians 3a, Paul will refer to the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul is saying that we have every spiritual blessing or enrichment necessary for a great spiritual life. And so this underlines the importance of a vision and a plan for appropriating fully what God has given us in this realm. Back to physical blessings, we could also imagine what it would be like to have every material blessing. And again, it probably wouldn't be a blessing at all. The third point here is my favorite. The reception and the timing of the blessing is has blessed. Colossians 2, 9 and 10, we have been brought to fullness. Did you catch that this is expressed in the past tense? 
It's not getting more from God, but simply appropriating what has already been given. Don't ask, just appropriate. Neil Anderson says, this is not a command to be obeyed, but a truth to be believed. Watchman Nee in his awesome book, The Normal Christian Life, says, what is true of your forgiveness is also true of your deliverance. The work is done. There's no need to pray, but only to praise. God has put us all in Christ so that when Christ was crucified, we were crucified also. Do you believe in the death of Christ? Of course you do. But the same Holy Scripture that says he died for us says that we died with him. Our old man was crucified with him. We died with Christ. Romans 6, 6 and 8. It's already done, except the gift, and not just for salvation, but for sanctification and the abundant life. Think of the people of Israel with Jericho. It had been defeated for 40 years, and unfortunately in Numbers 13 and 14, they turn aside from the promises of God-given victory for 40 years in the wilderness. A huge application here is how we pray and how we think about prayer. Often we'll pray for strength and peace as if it's an add-on that God is going to give us more of it. But from this perspective, God has already given it. Again, Watchman Nee, think of the bewilderment of trying to get into a room in which you already are. Think of the absurdity of asking to be put in. So from this angle, it would be like me praying to be in my office. Well, I'm already in my office. When we pray to God for strength and peace, things he's already given us, it makes about as much sense. Nee then concludes, if we had more revelation, we should have fewer prayers and more praises. We spend so much time praying for ourselves just because we are blind to what God has already done. Now, it is a bit more complicated than that, and I don't want to imagine that prayer is some simple thing. For example, Luke 11 and 18, Jesus talks about insistent and repetitive prayer, but there's a tension here because insistent, repetitive prayer is often out of a lack of faith, failing to trust God, failing to appropriate what God has already given, and that's the point that Paul is making here. Ultimately, there must be a time for insistent, repetitive prayer, but we need to make sure that it's in light of the point that Paul's making here and in light of the great blessings God has already given us. Finally, what are the source of these blessings? It's the Trinitarian God. Early in verse 3, praise to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then later in verse 3, it can be translated every blessing of the Holy Spirit. So all three persons of the Trinity show up here. Now that said, especially in Ephesians, two dozen times there's an emphasis on in Christ. And you see the same thing in the parallel book of Colossians, chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. Notice also it says in Christ, not in, let's say, church or in spiritual disciplines or other things. All of those are vehicles to in Christ. All those are means to the end of being in Christ. And beyond that, the end of living the sort of abundant life and having the spiritual blessings that is being talked about by Paul here. Dallas Willard says, a part of this sounds like abundance of life, but other parts seem like obedience, something that, well, might spoil our plans or ruin our life. But the truth about obedience in the kingdom of Jesus is that it really is abundance. The inner condition of the soul from which strength and love and peace flow is the very same condition that generously blesses the oppressor and lovingly offers the other cheek. Let me close with an Old Testament example of God's provision inspiring and providing for them. When you look at Joshua 1, 3 through 9, God promises the extent of the blessing, underlines the previous promises that have been fulfilled, and thus the credibility of the source of those promises, God himself 
And so it's on the basis of that that we have the famous commands in verse 6 and 9 to be strong and courageous. But note what's in the middle. Verses 7 and 8, we hardly talk about this. It's a call to obedience and to being centered in God's word. And it's the same for us. We can be strong and courageous because of the great blessings that God has given us. And that is accomplished by obedience and walking in his word. May it be ever so. Time to take a break. Stay tuned. We'll be back in a minute. Right now we're in Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. In the previous segment, I talked about verse 3 in great detail. A terrific verse that you need to know. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. We talked about its nature, which is spiritual, its extent, every blessing. Crucially, its timing, it's in the past tense, and its source, which is in Christ. In a sense, everything that Paul's going to talk about stems from verse 3, or more broadly, everything in the second half of Ephesians, the more famous half, the responsibilities we have in Christ, stems from the resources we have in Christ, which will be covered throughout these first three chapters. But that great opening in verse 3 gets us off to a very good start. A great example of this elsewhere in Scripture, 2 Peter 1, verses 3 through 8. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these, He has given us His very great and precious promises. Again, a terrific focus on the resources we have in Christ, the spiritual blessings. But where does Peter go after that? Starting in the second half of verse 4, he says, So that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, to goodness knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's those great blessings, it's the great and precious promises that through them we may participate in the divine nature. And then after that, we make every effort, it's God's provision and our participation to avoid the profitless life that he talks about at the end of the passage. We want to possess these qualities in increasing measure, those spiritual blessings that are offered to every believer. Let's appropriate those, let's use them for the glory of God and to have the spiritual blessing, the abundant life that God promises us in Christ Jesus. So let me read Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves." Let's start with that beautiful phrase at the beginning of verse 6, the glorious grace. And so it's God's grace and God's glory that are the key climax of this passage, and arguably all of Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, which is one sentence of praise from Paul to open up this book. First, let's consider the timing of that glorious grace. Verse 4 opens with, before the creation of the world. Again, this is very much in the past tense. 
Jeremiah 1, 5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. That's part of the call to Jeremiah in the opening of that great book. John 17, 24, Father, I want those who you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. In our testimonies about Jesus for salvation, we say it was our decision, but the fact is God has been chasing us from birth. Now, there are other key words here. Verse 4 mentions chose, verse 5 mentions predestined, and we'll get into that later. But for now, the focus is on the timing of the glorious grace, and it's very much past tense, established in history and God's promises that have already been delivered. Second, the purpose of the glorious grace is also in verse 4, and it's radical transformation. To be holy and blameless is how Paul expresses it here. 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12, you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. We are to be set apart, to be blameless, all of this for God's glory and to impact the world around us. A few other things to say here. First, the word blameless connects to being without blemish, which brings to mind Old Testament sacrifices, a type of Jesus and what's hoped for from us. This also underlines that God's goal is not our happiness and comfort, but joy and holiness to be set apart for and conform to God. But it's important to remember that this holiness is a result of that relationship with God, not a cause or a catalyst for starting a relationship with God. Remember Galatians 5.16, so I say, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. And often we get that exactly backwards. We're declared holy by Christ, that's justification, and we're made holy by life in the Spirit, that's sanctification. All of this should be an incentive, a motivation for righteousness, obedience, and so on. And often we point to various forms of determinism to make excuses about our sin, our genetics, our environment, our culture. We're predestined. Again, a topic we'll come back later. Whatever we do with predestination, we've got to leave room for choice, free will, obedience in following Christ to be holy and blameless. That is the purpose of the radical transformation that is intended through God's glorious grace. The third point is we also see some language that points to the motive for God's glorious grace. Verse 4 says it's in love. Verse 5 says it's in accordance with his pleasure and will. Both the giving of the glorious grace and his goals for us with respect to the radical transformation that we just talked about are not God being a killjoy that's not for their own sake. It's for his pleasure, his will, and it's all out of love. We worship a good and great God. If we don't believe that, it's going to be very difficult to follow him. And then finally, the means of the glorious grace is through divine adoption in verses 5 and 6. John 1.12 says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. 
Romans 8, 14 through 17, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Galatians 4, 3 through 7 is very good on this, that we're not just sons, but also heirs and all of that in contrast to being a slave as we were formerly in bondage. Hebrews 2, 11, both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. And 1 John 3, 1, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. As John Stott puts it, election is with a view to adoption. Or as Warren Wiersbe says, you get into his family by regeneration, the new birth. Adoption is the act of God by which he gives his born ones an adult standing in the family. Again, we see the connection between resources and responsibilities as a microcosm in these verses. God chose us so that we should be his sons and that we should be holy. The sonship precedes the call to holiness. As Paul writes in 2 Timothy 1.9, he has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. All right, let's go back to choosing and predestined in verse 4 and verse 5. And first of all, they're in the past tense. So again, back to what I said in verse 3, this is already done. And this is not just an emphasis of Paul. Look at 1 Peter 1.1, where Peter uses elect as part of his introduction. We even see this in Proverbs chapter 16, verses 3 and 4. Commit to the Lord whatever you do, and he will establish your plans. The Lord works out everything to its proper end, even the wicked for a day of disaster. Or Proverbs 19.21, many are the plans in a person's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. And so we see this topic laced throughout Scripture, and we also see this dance between free will and predestination that we're going to need to talk about. The good thing here is that we're predestined to do this topic today. One of the great things about expository teaching is you can't avoid any verse, any passage. So that's a few of the key trees, but before we dig into the forest, we're going to need to take a break. If you're on Facebook, like Purity, unfriend me there. Questions and comments are welcome on my Facebook. Previous episodes are available through podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and so on. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. Two segments ago, I covered Ephesians 1.3, and in the previous segment, I covered the rest of Ephesians 1.3 through 6, except for a longer discussion of election and predestination, and that's the topic of this segment. Now, this is a very tough topic, famously so, and the best I can do is give an introduction to the tensions at hand, give you some principles, something to chew on. Obviously, I'm not going to solve this issue for you in 10 minutes. So let's start with a 10,000-foot view of some of the tensions at hand. The first would be logical. Does God's foreknowledge tie our hands? Is there really a choice if God knows what's happening in the first place? And the answer is apparently yes, but it's difficult for us to understand this. We can look at some analogies. Imagine a master versus a novice chess player, and the former knows the moves of the latter already. Or think about the times when you have little kids, and you know what they're going to do. You have the power to prevent it, but you let them do it anyway, even though you know the choice they're going to make, and they're going to get themselves into trouble. 
And those don't fully answer the question, but maybe they help us understand the possibility that God would have predestination and election, but still allow us to have free will. There's also questions of justice. How can God be just and fair if some are chosen and some are not? Pharaoh is a key example, both in the scriptures, Romans 9, and in Old Testament history. It's a longer discussion. I cover this in the podcast when I cover Exodus, but it turns out Pharaoh hardens his own heart and then has his own heart hardened. And probably the top answer for that second condition is that God hardens his heart so he has the strength to exercise his free will. Now, all this is fine, but can we do better than generalities, hand-waving, and lame analogies? Well, at some level, note that it doesn't really matter. It's beyond us. Frederick Beekner talks about explaining physics to a little-neck clam. And we want answers, but we're not going to get all the answers. If we did, it wouldn't be much of a God. We could put God in a box. We could fully understand him. A God who's infinite is not going to be fully understood by finite humans. But still, it's an important topic, if not for us, then for some others. And we ought to be equipped to be able to handle the topic at hand and deal with reasonable questions about the concepts in play here. The punchline will be, and I'll say this at the end, whatever your answer is to this, it needs to include both free will and predestination because both of those are biblical concepts. Now, of the two concepts and questions at hand, let's deal with the easier one first. Why is there free will? And the answer here, I think, is that we can praise God. We have choice here. Ephesians 1, 12 and 14 talks about the praise of his glory. Deuteronomy 30, verse 19, This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I've set before you life and death, blessings and curse. Now choose life so that you and your children may live. 2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Clearly, it's a matter of our choice. Revelation 22, 17, the Bible wraps up with the Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. All this pictures Isaiah 55, 1 and 2, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread, your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me, and eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest affair. So in addition to our own choice, it was important to Jesus that he made clear that he was making a choice. John 10, verses 17 and 18, The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. And the logic here is pretty simple. If we're just sheep, if we're just robots, if it's just coercion, then you cannot have unsolicited praise. Voluntary relationships bring greater pleasure and glory. C.S. Lewis is helpful on this in Mere Christianity, Book 2, Chapter 3. Anyone who has been in authority knows how a thing can be in accordance with your will in one way and not in another. You make a thing voluntary and then half the people do not do it. That is not what you willed, but your will has made it possible. Of course, God knew what would happen if they used their freedom the wrong way. Apparently, he thought it worth the risk. Perhaps we feel inclined to disagree with him, but there's a difficulty about disagreeing with God. He is the source from which all your reasoning power comes. So free will is a given, both from Scripture and our own sense of our own experience. But how do we reconcile free choice, free will, with predestination? 
Well, again, we need both here. Proverbs 16, 9, in their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. And even in two pretty popular, famous New Testament passages, we see election within those as well. Acts 2, 38 and 39, Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. In Acts 13, 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. John Stott says, Scripture nowhere dispels the mystery of election, and we should beware of any who try to systematize it too precisely or rigidly. It is not likely that we shall discover a simple solution to a problem which has baffled the best brains of Christendom for centuries. Now, just because it's baffled the best brains doesn't mean it's irrelevant and should be ignored. For example, historically, we know that a strong emphasis on predestination has led to no evangelism, and a strong emphasis on free will has led to works righteousness. So there are weaknesses and tendencies that go with either view. Again, we need to be careful here. So let's lay out some other thoughts and analogies that may help us gain some perspective. Stott says it's a divine revelation, not a human speculation. So it's from God. We need to try to understand it, but ultimately humbly accept it insofar as we can't understand it. We just simply apprehend it rather than comprehending it. Biblically, the theme of election begins with Abraham back in Genesis 12:1, and Israel, Exodus 19, 5, and 6. And they were chosen and special in a sense, but all people had access to God's grace, and these chosenness, specialness, ended up leading them to greater responsibility and ultimately greater punishment when they didn't do what they were supposed to do. In the New Testament, the terms are always and only used with Christians. We also know that in fulfilling prophecy, that's a form of predestination, but it obviously didn't compromise free will. Again, there's a difference between foreseeing something and causing it. And then one other distinction that may be helpful, election may be thought of referring to people and predestination to purposes. And if so, then God predestines his plan and purposes, not people per se. An example of this is in Esther 4.14, where Esther sees herself fulfilling the promise, but she's told, look, if you don't do it, someone else will. Esther had a choice, but God's purposes were going to be done either way. We can also point to our perspective on life to have some sense of an understanding. Life is a combination of ex ante and ex post, things that we saw as the way to go, but looking back, was there really ever a choice? We often think of things in that way. One person has said the hand dealt is determinism, the hand played is free will. Or as D. L. Moody puts it in terms of Christianity, the elect are the whosoever wills, the non-elect are the whosoever wants. And not surprisingly, we have a limited perspective. God is outside of time. He's from the outside looking in. And from Earth's perspective, it's whosoever believes in him. But from the inside looking out, from a heavenly perspective, it's those who are chosen in eternity. So why are predestination and election even in the Bible at all? And it'd be a lot less confusion if God just simply excluded it. The only explanation we're given is God's love. Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8 is very good on this. Deuteronomy 4, 37 says, Because he loved your ancestors and chose their descendants after them, he brought you out of Egypt by his presence and his great strength. In the New Testament, 1 John 4, 10, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. 
A second reason is that this principle concept keeps God very big, and it connects to our faith. Again, if we understood him, there wouldn't be any faith involved. In particular, it emphasizes God's eternality and sovereignty, again, connecting to faith and obedience. Indirectly, it promotes a grace rather than works perspective. You can't, in pride, imagine that you're going to rise to the standards of a God like this. Again, we're not chosen on our merit, but because of God's love. And deflecting anything from that into our decision or glory is inappropriate. Romans 8, 29 and 30, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Alec Motyer says, Human initiative seeking to provoke divine response lies at the heart of non-biblical religion. Divine initiative is the essence of the Bible's testimony. And we see that here in Ephesians. God is the major actor in chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. John Stott observes the emphasis of the whole first paragraph is on God's grace, God's love, God's will, God's purpose, and God's choice. And our only part of it will be in verses 12 and 13, to be the first to hope in Christ and having believed. A key phrase here is what's called prevenient grace. I learned about this through A.W. Tozer, where he writes, Before a man can seek God, God must have first sought the man. Before a sinful man can think a right thought of God, there must be a work of enlightenment done within him. God is always previous. In practice, however, that is where God's previous working meets man's present response, man must pursue God. It may not seem that way to us, but God's grace is always previous or prevenient. But to me, the biggie is that it tells us something important about God's character and his relationship to us. If God pursues us, then God wants us. Think back to Ephesians 1.5, that it's God's pleasure and will. And that word pleasure, I think, is unexpected, but so relevant to predestination, God choosing, selecting, chasing us. C.S. Lewis talks about this in his own testimony. He says, I never had the experience of looking for God. It was the other way around. He was the hunter, or so it seemed to me, and I was the deer. He stalked me, took unerring aim, and fired. And I'm very thankful that this is how the first conscious meeting occurred. It forearms one against subsequent fears that the whole thing was only wish fulfillment. Something one didn't wish for can hardly be that. Christianity is the only religion where God pursues us. Think of the book of Hosea, particularly chapter 2. Both in salvation and sanctification, he pursues with unconditional, unrelenting love. And this, of course, should impact our theology and our lifestyle. Paul writes in Colossians 3, 12, and 13, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. In a nutshell, chosen speaks to our value in God's eyes, points to our security, underlines our purpose, and so on. Remember that Jesus chose his own disciples and invited them into relationship. This is in contrast to the usual rabbi-student relationship, which started with an application process of sorts. Jesus chose them, Jesus chooses us, and it should change everything. I'll give the last word to John Stott. He says, The doctrine of election is never introduced in Scripture either to arouse or to baffle, but always for a practical purpose. On the one hand, it engenders deep humility and gratitude, for it excludes all boasting. 
On the other, it brings both peace and assurance, for nothing can quiet our fears for our own stability, like the knowledge that our safety depends ultimately not on ourselves, but on God's own purpose of grace. Or as Paul writes about it in Ephesians 1.6, it's God's glorious grace that is at the heart of everything. May we embrace that grace for salvation and sanctification. It's been good to be with you today. We hope you'll join us next time on The Word Diet.